Hello and welcome to Gamification Unlocked, a show about real games and how we can use their techniques for learning and change. I'm Brandon Carper, an instructional designer. I'm Chad Hayfley. I work in user experience and academic libraries. And today brings us to our last, I promise, installment on discovery learning. So in our first episode, we talked about the light side of discovery learning, about how it forces people to learn critical thinking skills, to encode it in their long-term memory since they went through the difficulty of acquiring it for themselves and giving them more intrinsic motivation to learn. In our last episode, we talked about the dark side of discovery learning. Chad, can you refresh our memories on parts of the dark side? Yeah, it turns out that maybe you are not learning the foundational principles you might need in order to think critically about how to apply these skills. You might have learned how to solve a problem, but only that problem and not uh, other permutations on such. Oh, very well put, Chad. Excellent. Thank you. You're welcome. So I promised, we promised, to tell you this episode what to take away from this as an educator or a training designer or possibly a designer of any type of experience. So the answer is actually contained in the 2011 meta-study that we talked about last week. So in addition to comparing discovery learning to the more traditional expository learning, they also researched something called enhanced discovery, which they found to be the most effective teaching method. So chat, a combination of discovery and expository learning. What a synthesis. Who would have guessed that after going through a thesis and antithesis, we would end up with a synthesis? Whoa, 50 years in the making. I said so many big words and now everyone is asleep. <clears throat> um, <laughs> I'm still here. Okay, good. So basically, this works out to be what people usually recommend in modern instructional design courses, is that teachers provide feedback as students are working through problems. They provide them with the the worked examples that we talked about last week, where they help students examine a problem that an expert has worked through. They provide them with uh, scaffolding, which we talked about in Papers, Please, where mm-hmm. you provide someone support to do a topic or a problem and gradually take that away until they can do it on their own. It also involves helping students elicit their own explanations. So, One of the benefits way back in the 1960s that Bruner talked about was discovery learning helps you come up with your own explanations for what's going on, so that helps you remember it better. Well, that is still valid, but you can get to where you want to go a lot faster if there's an instructor kind of guiding that uh, thought process, maybe through Socratic questioning, perhaps. Whoa. Whoa, another big word. Socratic synthesis, antithesis, what's going on? Uh, and at least in, in my studies, uh, discovery learning survives mostly in what we would call problem-centered learning, so not problem-based learning necessarily. Uh, problem-centered learning is using a relevant problem to, to frame the training, and this is kind of instructional design 101, but let's say you're doing a customer service training. You want to start with a call from a customer, perhaps, who is angry about a malfunctioning product. Boom, there's a problem that you're going to solve. Mm-hmm. You're going to demonstrate how to respond to that call, maybe give some principles to keep in mind when dealing with uh, angry customers, explain the steps you're taking, how they relate to those principles, have the students practice responding to that call while uh, you give feedback, 
and then give them similar but uh, but different calls to practice on and eventually uh, turn them loose and uh, shadow them as they do it and give them feedback on their actual performance. I'm glad to hear you describe it this way because that's almost exactly how I train people on our uh, chat <laughs> reference questions. <laughs> Congratulations, you hit the instructional Woo-hoo. design jackpot. <laughs> get my gold star for the day. <laughs> So so there you're having someone going through the experience of solving the problem and getting kind of the benefits that, that Bruner was talking about without all of the trial and error that might force them to take forever and come up with bad habits. You, you don't want to have a new customer service agent <laughs> going through trial and error on your customer service lines. Probably. <laughs> Not so much. That ties back to, uh, it was a couple weeks ago, we talked about communities of practice and, you know, building up that knowledge and being able to transfer it on. Oh, sure. Sure. People have already figured this thing out. So why not, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants and all that? Yep. Yeah. Yep. The company will appreciate it. Right. Right. So yeah, so yeah to summarize, you're not forcing them to learn through trial and error, which is problem-based, but you are using that problem situation as the foundation for training, which is problem-centered. Um, you can see this in, we talked about uh, Merrill's first principles of instruction uh, a few episodes ago, which is uh, one of them is people learn better when they're shown a problem to solve. And uh, also just in general, learning is all about connecting new knowledge to what you already know. But first, you have to bring that existing knowledge into working memory. You have to bring, you know, all of those files that are stored away in the file cabinet of your brain onto the desktop so you can, you know, draw your connections with your <laughs> big red magic marker and make your uh, huge conspiracy map. In <clears throat> um, a very effective way to get all of the right files in your brain out onto the desktop of your working memory is by showing someone a relevant problem that triggers that. Mm-hmm. So wasn't planning to talk about conspiracy theory maps when I started that sentence, but, well, here we are. <clears throat> if this was a video show, people could see the conspiracy theory map behind you, <laughs> tying all of our episodes together in an elaborate web with you at the center. Uh, but then there'd be an even bigger shot that pulls back and you are actually at the center, Chad. Come back next season. Uh, Yes. So you can also see the importance of problems in uh, Keller's ARCS model, A-R-C-S. Have we talked about this before? Maybe not. I don't think so. So ARCS ARCS is a model for motivating people in training. Uh, A stands for attention. So basically you're supposed to grab people's attention through a variety of ways. R stands for uh, relevant. So make sure your training is relevant to people's lives. C stands for confidence. So your trainers are motivated, your learners are motivated if they are confident they can do the task they're being trained on. And S stands for satisfaction. So learners are satisfied if the task they're learning to do is worthwhile in their lives. So if you structure training around a dramatic problem, like an angry customer calling about a broken product, you're going to grab their attention, right? You're going to show that it's relevant to them. And they're going to be satisfied that the task is worthwhile because it's going to be something that they're going to encounter on the job, probably. Mm -hmm. I've kind of accidentally applied these principles without knowing the terms. Um, When I've teach, I think I've maybe have talked about this before because it's one of the things I tend to teach most often. But the um, the Zotero software for bibliographic management, keeping citations in order. Sure. Like 
when it, when I sell it that way, like it's a bibliographic management piece of software that helps you organize your citations. <laughs> you know, you can hear the undergraduates going to sleep in the class. Um, but if you start it as, hey, look, here's how it formats a citation for you and solves this problem that that you have. Like I show them the outcomes and try to build the relevancy and instill confidence in them that they too can do it. Yeah, 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 sure. And the confidence piece comes from the, you know, hopefully you design some effective training that can actually yeah. get them there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In corporate America, we have uh, the phrase with them. <laughs> I've not run. I've not run into that one either. Uh, what's in it for me? <clears throat> okay. Yeah, I could see that transferring. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. So sounds like you have some excellent natural instincts, Chad. Well, thank you. You're welcome. And now I'm going to venture a little bit off the the beaten path here and talk about uh, what I call, for lack of a better term, light bulb moments, because Mm -hmm. I wasn't really able to find a whole lot of research and theory about what I'm going to jump into. But anyway, to talk about light bulb moments, let's first talk about the different types of memory. So there's a guy named Endel Toolving who said there are three types of memory. He made that name up. I did not, nor did I, <laughs> nor am I trying to win at Scrabble. <laughs> um, and uh, for good summary and discussion of what we're going to talk about, you can look at an article titled Episodic Memory, a Neglected Phenomenon in the Psychology of Education from the Educational Psychologist Journal in 1993, where an author called Jack Martin talked about these three types as procedural, semantic, and episodic. Um, so those are the terms that Tolving used. Martin explains them as procedural is an unconscious reaction to stimuli. So that's basically your muscle memory. So the ability to kick a soccer ball. You know, once you learn to kick a soccer ball, you don't have to go through that. What is actually an extremely complicated mental procedure to kick the ball every single time. Your body just sees the ball and you, you kick it. <clears throat> yeah, never start thinking about every movement you have to do in order to walk or pick something up. Or breathe or blink. Now everyone Oh, God, me. no. Oh, no. <laughs> You've done it. You've done me in. Uh, the second type, semantic memory, is your, your conscious understanding of the world. So that's like knowing that the principle behind kicking a soccer ball, that you got to either hit it with the inside of your foot or the top of your foot, and you're center of balance should be in a certain spot and so on. Uh, And then the third type is episodic memory, which is you connecting the world to yourself. So that's, for example, remembering a time that you hit the soccer ball with your toe and missed a goal. Never happened to me. (laughs) Ever. (laughs) Not a single time. Not a single time. So I solved that problem by not playing soccer. Well, the (laughs) the only way to win is not to play. Yep. Uh, Thank you, Matthew Broderick. So brain imaging suggests, interestingly enough, that episodic memory is stored in the right hemisphere of the brain, while semantic memory is stored in the left hemisphere of the brain, which explains how people can lose their episodic memories about themselves, but still function in the world based on their semantic memory. Hmm. So maybe the movie version of... uh... Losing your memory is perhaps plausible after all. Yeah, so uh, Memento, for example, mm-hmm. uh, plays a lot on that idea. Uh, you can learn more about those different hemispheres in a book called Learning Instruction, Theory into Practice, which we'll also link. talks about it briefly. So 
Uh, Jack Martin proposed that instruction can be designed and delivered in ways that enhance learners' episodic memories for instructional events and information. The rationale for these instructional manipulations is that more extensive episodic memories will mediate superior retention and use of the relevant procedural and declarative knowledge, as well as strengthening the supportive attitudes and feelings. Well, let's paraphrase that. (laughs) (laughs) Please, I was about to say that was one of the more academic sentences I've heard in a while. Um, So basically, he's calling on Bruner's idea that well, I don't know. I don't know if this is actually strictly Bruner's idea. Basically, he's saying that if you can have someone generate an episodic memory while they're learning a new thing, that kind of stores it in a way that will make that instruction easier to recall in the future. So is he saying that the episodic memory... The memory itself is less important than the process in which you're storing the memory. Well, I guess you can think of it as so. You know, we talked about memory or you know knowledge being a series of connections in the brain, and, to, and when you learn something, you're basically connecting a new thing to something you already know. And the more links you can establish with a new thing that you learn, the more likely you are to remember remember that thing. So, if as you're learning a thing, you can connect it not only to your semantic memory, right, but also to your episodic memory then you're more likely to be able to recall it in the future if you forget the the semantic part. Gotcha. Okay. So, you know, maybe you're teaching your students Zotero and you tell them a very dramatic story about, uh, I don't know, does someone ever need to look up their citations in their papers? It's a bibliographic emergency. Uh, Yes, the President of the United States needs to figure out where this... (laughs) citation came from (laughs) and they called you up and you weren't able to tell them because you formatted your citation wrong no so here's why you should be able to learn it um so that maybe they'll recall your silly story because you know they for momentarily put themselves in the shoes of someone talking to the president of the united states and that kind of triggered the memory of how to use zotero in a way that just you know strictly telling them how to use the software wouldn't Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I think so. I think I'm catching on. Yeah. Am I getting there? So uh, so here's another way to phrase it. Maybe this is just academic as the, the previous one. But this, this idea comes from another journal called Advances in Physiology Education in 1988. 1998, sorry. Um, that article said that active learning opportunities result in an episodic memory, which is a type of memory specific to an event. With episodic memory, if you cannot remember the idea, you can reconstruct it from your memory of the event. Episodic memories are particularly long-lasting and can serve as the key to the recall of the information. Hmm. So, so it's sa- so it's saving building blocks, maybe to help you. I guess maybe building blocks is the wrong metaphor, or signposts, or something to to help you get back to the important part. Yeah, it's similar to. Um... I mean, have you ever heard of the mnemonic device of making up a story to uh-huh. uh, to remember something? Like when I was trying to learn, uh, you know, Japanese alphabets, I would make up a story about the different elements in there, and then even if I couldn't, you know, remember the the character necessarily, I could remember the story, and the story would take me back to the individual elements, and I could kind of put them together that way. Is that Sherlock Holmes in his memory palace? Yeah, similar. Yeah, I think that's very similar. So. Uh, 
Yeah, so one way of remembering something is to picture yourself, like if you want to remember a procedure, you can picture yourself walking through the house, through your house in the way that you normally do. Let's say you come into the hallway first, you picture yourself doing the first step, and then the second step is, you know, in the place where you go to next in your house and so on. So by creating a strong image there, you're kind of tying that into your episodic memory of walking through your house. That makes sense. I think I'm starting to coming at this from different angles is help helping helping image it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, the whole yeah, you know, the memory palace thing. I don't know. The the way Sherlock Holmes' memory is presented in at least the BBC version is just so, you know, over and beyond what mere mortals can achieve that I I guess it's the the same idea is that, you know, his ability to do the the house technique is so good that yeah, he basically can store as much as he wants in in his memory. Oh, sure. I'm not saying that's a plausible representation of, <laughs> of, of these theories, but, you know, taken to an extreme. Um, so anyway, I think what this proposes about discovery learning is that the the, the pleasure of figuring out the, the puzzle, of figuring out the principle or the concept, I think, creates a strong episodic memory in a way that just having someone tell you the answer doesn't. Mm-hmm. Right. So if we go back to Ethan Carter from a couple episodes ago, uh, I had it was a really cool feeling when I figured out what I was supposed to do with that murder mystery in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And then thinking back to, okay, the murder on the train tracks, oh, that's what I was supposed to do. And being able to run back there and put it all together and see it work because my guess was right. That was a really cool feeling that I wouldn't have gotten if the game had just given me a tutorial on how to solve those puzzles, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm probably going to remember that feeling, you know, far beyond the actual mechanics of of solving the murder. Yeah, here we are talking about it now. Right, right. Uh, I had a similar feeling in some of the the missed games, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that light bulb moment. That... Right, where you know I could look up the answer online, but just studying the puzzle for a while, like in. And the the sequel to Mist, Riven, you actually have to learn an entire, I think it's like a base five numbering system. Oh man, I never got that far. Yeah, just by looking at different objects in your environment. And once you're able to piece that all together, you you see places where you have to use the knowledge of what character means, what number. And, you know, I, you know to, the, to this day, like 20 years later, literally, I can still remember solving that puzzle and how good it felt. Um which I wouldn't have if I had just gone through a tutorial on how to, you know, read the numbers in that world. So some of this took you hours to get to, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, Ethan Carter, I was wandering around aimlessly for a couple hours, and I was actually kind of annoyed with the game. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, what made you stick with it for those couple hours? Like, is it something in the way the game was structured? Are there lessons to take from that also? Uh, it was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Step one. <laughs> Don't be ugly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think literally, literally that was it. I mean, the, the, uh, so we talked about the different elements of motivation, one of them being attention, right? And, uh, part of attention, even from a training perspective is just to appeal to people's senses. So the game, the game is, just, is really a beautiful game. It takes place in like, like, I don't know, Appalachia, maybe like, a mm-hmm. a depressed mining town in the mountains and the sun's setting, and there's a, a river, and yeah, it's just really, really pleasant to look at, and 
so that that kept me going just the just the sensory experience of it as well as well as the curiosity right um mm-hmm. i wanted to figure out what kind of the, the premise was and why no one was here and why i was looking for ethan carter and um who i was and why there was a spaceman for no reason in the middle of a field <laughs> so don't be ugly have a spaceman right right don't be ugly and have a spaceman um instant steps to make every training session better those are our takeaways but no i think that's interesting because it it gets into you know issues beyond mechanics it kind of synthesizes a lot of you know the story is important and the setting is important your your um maybe not the quality of graphics themselves but your visual style is important and kind of hooking people long enough to keep them interested in this process right right and uh so that that got me thinking you know is there is there a way that you could create the episodic memory effect of having that light bulb moment without all of the the inefficient trial and error of a of a pure discovery learning environment mm-hmm. um and unfortunately i couldn't find much in the way of empirical studies on on this which is kind of fitting since jack martin's article in 1993 called episodic learning or episodic memory a neglected phenomenon like i guess it, <laughs> it still is tradition continues yeah. uh but it reminded me of uh playing a game called hearthstone a couple months ago we touched on Hearthstone back in our metagaming episode. Yes, where I think you were kind of derisive of the concept of uh, digital collecti- digital <laughs> collectible cards. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's fine if that's what. I mean, I I play enough Warcraft, World of Warcraft, in my life <laughs> that I I have no I have no pedestal to stand on and look down on someone else who collects imaginary things. Certainly. Oh no no no! I would never. <laughs> I, I would uh, definitely include myself in that circle. But yeah, Hearthstone's a collectible digital card game where you, you fight other people. You're, you're summoning creatures, and your creatures fight your opponent's creatures. And if your creatures can basically hit your opponent enough times, he loses all his hit points, and uh, and you win. So when I was going through the game tutorial, they briefly introduced these creatures that had an ability called Taunt which uh, taunt is in make fun of or, or mock or something, which is a, a very core mechanic of, of World of Warcraft, which is the same universe that Hearthstone takes place in. Basically, when you put one of these cards out, your opponent's creatures cannot attack anything except for the creature with the, the taunt ability. Oh, that poor creature. Yeah, and usually these creatures have a lot of hit points or, or something something else uh, to soak up the, the damage. And uh, in the game, instead of, you know telling you about it in an extended way and forcing you to play a card with with taunt on it it actually puts you in a situation where your opponent plays out a bunch of creatures and uh and they're all about to attack you and you're about to lose the game but you know as you're each turn you're drawing random cards and it happens that just as that situation is about to you know lose you the game you suddenly draw a creature with with taunt on it and uh and you play it and all of your opponent's creatures attack the creature you just played, and you're able to get out of the situation and, and win the game. I really like that idea. <laughs> it kind of upends the trope of, I think we talked about before in Final Fantasy, where like there's games, or there's boss fights you are supposed to lose uh-huh. narratively. Uh, so yeah. You might feel like you're heading for that, but then all of a sudden, no, it's a learning moment. Right. That's a, that's a, a very good point. Uh, yeah, hopefully the new Final Fantasy game... <laughs> <laughs> arrived at the same conclusion um 
So because you're drawing cards randomly and you can technically pursue other strategies, the effect for me at least was if as if I'd figured out this really awesome play on my own to get out of the corner, even though there's not really much I could have done besides play this card. So I kind of got that episodic light bulb moment um, without all the, the hardship of, you know, trial and error. So in the context of the game, you would assume that the cards you're getting are randomly drawn, right? Right. So is that part of why this works so well, you think, that it feels... I mean, you you can kind of figure out that the game has given you this, this card at the t- exact time you need it, but at the time, you're not thinking of it that way? Yeah, I mean, at the time, I just thought, oh, I'm drawing random cards, and I happened to draw the card, and I thought about it a bit, and oh, it looks mm-hmm. like, you know, I can use this. Um, and maybe it just worked out perfectly in my particular instance, but I, I would not be surprised. I mean, Blizzard is is phenomenal at you know, the, the scaffolding process. Yeah. <laughs> I would not be surprised if there was some code to program that card to appear at the exact number you needed it just so you could have that, that teachable moment there. Mm-hmm. I really like that. So, but yeah, I think that's key is to kind of, to mask what's mask, what's mm-hmm. going on. You need to have the, the curtain over the wizard there um, to get that. that and, and you still essentially figured it out yourself. They provided you the materials, but you still had to make the choice to play that card. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, Grant, all my other options were kind of dumb, but, you know, I did have other <laughs> options, so, you know, it it, it it felt like I was figuring something out on my own. Mm-hmm. So I guess if I were to suggest a model to, to repulate, to, to repulate, to... <laughs> <laughs> Another new word. <laughs> to to replicate this, this simulation of discovery learning, I would say that the, the first key is that maybe you want to have the learner engaged in practicing something they already know how to do from a previous lesson. So that helps mask the fact that new information is coming and that you're about to teach them something else. So in Hearthstone, I was busy, you know, practicing just putting cards on the board and watching them fight other cards. Um, And I wasn't, you know, prepared for a new thing to be on the way. Uh, Then I think the second step while they're engaged in that is to provide clues for for solving a new problem while they're while they're doing that other thing successfully and the uh the clue here was just to have that you know card pop up for me mm-hmm. i think you know kind of simultaneous with that or shortly thereafter you have to present the uh the new problem so my new problem there was all these creatures were about to kill me mm-hmm. and then i think you have to restrict their information resources or possible actions to steer them toward the correct answer. So in this case, that would be by giving you crappy options as all your other options? Right. I mean, I only had a couple of cards to play, and the other ones were, like I said, kind of kind of dumb. They were just weak creatures that weren't going to save my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's connections here to, you know, standard interface design principles that, you know, a good, good interface will kind of train users how to use it as they go by, you know, removing unnecessary options, showing them only what's relevant at the time, etc. Yeah, that's a good point. And when you're designing a game, you don't want everything to be a problem. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember reading an article about Halo 3 a while ago and how they would make heat maps of the levels where they would... Oh, yes. I think I saw that too. Oh, really? Yeah, they, they would play test the levels and see where people would spend most of their time. If people spent most of their time going to a dead end, they would just kind of change the the curvature of the corridors a bit to make people go in the right direction. Yeah, I went to a talk by... Um... I can't remember her name, but I'll look it up and put it in the show notes mm-hmm. about last year. So some, she doesn't work there currently, but used to work at Bungie. 
doing that kind of work. And, you know, they determined, like, the, you know, the kill-death kill ratio between teams on one map, a team had a, uh, a very slight advantage that they couldn't account for, and it turned out that one team blended into the background too much, <laughs> like it was a red team and a blue team, and the background was blue. Really? And so they kind of had this natural camouflage ability that nobody had, had counted on. So then I think they, like, they tweaked, I can't remember if they tweaked the background color or the color of the armor of the players, but that, you know, rebalanced the, the gameplay. Huh, that's fascinating. Uh yeah, iteration and playtesting crucial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh yeah, so if you can, I guess that, that's that's really similar. Um, how they just kind of reshaped the level a bit in the the Halo Three instance to make them go in the right direction, so people feel like they're discovering something, you know. Whereas really they're just kind of on the rails of the the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we were to just you know look maybe an example of how to do this. Uh, let's say you're designing an e-learning course on doing tech support for a school district. Um, let's say you're troubleshooting computers that have problems connecting to the network by skimming their log files, resetting their network settings, restarting the computers. You can click to move around the office. You can go to the server room. You can go to the different classrooms in the building. And uh, as you're you know, solving these individual problems on the computers, maybe you get a message telling you that all of the computers in the building are having trouble connecting to the network. Everyone from the students to the principal is upset. The game then is going to have you solve this problem. The game won't allow you to look at any other information resources beyond what you've been looking at already. So you experience kind of a brief moment of frustration maybe until you notice a pattern in the log files. Overnight, the computers all had trouble connecting to a certain server at the same time. That might be important. Aha. So you navigate back to the server room and examine that server and find that it had a hardware failure and that trouble connecting overnight that it had was just a a symptom that it was about to fail. So you reroute the network request to a backup server. The school goes on functioning and the e-learning course then kind of segues into a lesson on looking for symptoms of a of hardware failure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there you have this kind of episodic story of how the high school ground to a halt and you solve the mystery and save the day by looking at those log files. And hopefully by going through that experience, that'll increase the, the likelihood that you'll remember and follow the upcoming lesson then on preventive hardware maintenance, for example. I feel like if Sierra was still around, this could, you know, be in the in the vein of Space Quest. You're not a space janitor anymore. You're <laughs> you're a space network technician. <laughs> they they did have a, a game in the series Space Quest Three where you visit a software development office. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. And so did the game just fold back in on itself and create a black hole somewhere? <laughs> uh, well, if you must know, so the office you go to. Is just like cubicle farms as far as the eye can see, and there's these upraised platforms of people walking up and down the platforms cracking whips. <laughs> oh, okay. So it's a it's one of those places, yeah. But then you rescue two people from that office and your spaceship gets caught in a black hole and they end up at the Sierra online office and those two people make the Space Quest games. So Oh, I thought I was making that up. <laughs> no, no, you aren't making it up. Nope. <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, we've had, uh, we've had quite a journey of discovery these past three episodes. Ah, I see what you did there. Yeah, we've been through kind of the, the origins of discovery learning theory, 
uh, it's it's rise and fall, and maybe how we can kind of take the good parts from discovery learning and unite them with some more traditional learning methods to to get something that is effective um, as well as uh, efficient. And we've seen some pretty good examples of all of these approaches along the way in, in the, all the games we've looked at. Yeah, I, I think so. Well, that's going to do it for us. So uh, you've been listening to Gamification Unlocked. I'm Brandon Carper. And I'm Chad Hayfley. And, uh, and hey, this message goes out to you. Yes, you, Steve. You. <laughs> if we have a listener named Steve, you're pretty freaked out right now. <laughs> you, Steve, as well as our other listeners who are not quite as freaked out, but might be a little freaked out that I'm addressing them personally. You might be in your car. You might be in the gym. You might be on your couch. And I know you must be thinking at this moment, I really like this podcast, but what can I do to support it? What can I do to let these two extremely good-looking guys know that they're doing a great job? Where can I send the check? <laughs> Chad, we're not going to ask for a check. Oh, wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, <laughs> now I've got good news for you. No checks involved. All you have to do is share this podcast on Facebook or, or give us a rating on iTunes. Or if you're feeling particularly crazy, you could do both. You could do both. And, you know, that'll be the clapping to the tinkerbells of our hearts. Won't it, Chad? I've not used that metaphor before, but yes. There's a first time for everything. Mm -hmm. And until next time, it's your move.